That was like a social statement, like saying, I thought that I was a little bit out of time. I thought I was a little ahead of my time. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Salon Podcast. As always, I'm Wyatt in Nashville, and that's Jason Brewer, also in Nashville. Hey, groovy ghouls and dudes. <laughs> groovy ghouls. It's not quite ghoul season. Hey, yet. I'm going to go on record in saying about the end of August, I start getting pumped for <laughs> for that stuff. So uh, okay, and Starbucks just had the. Um, the pumpkin spice stuff come out today, so come on, man! And the, right, and the Halloween right. stores are popping up. Come on, yeah. All right, I guess that's true. It just it's just still ninety degrees down here, and it doesn't feel like we should be talking about Halloween yet. But well, I uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm I, ready for I, it. Trust I'm just me. I'm ready for it when the day it ends. So yeah. Um. Anyway. Anyway. On, on, a, on a side note, you've got to play a little bit of Beach Boys Monster Mash under that. It'll be pretty oh, great. Oh, Lord. All right. <laughs> well, here we are again. We are talking about the Beach Boys. Go figure. I wanted to start today off with some news that isn't so happy. And uh, we had another loss in the Beach Boys family. That was Nick Walesco of Brian Wilson's band and the Wondermints. Uh, he passed away last week unexpectedly. And we wanted to send our thoughts and prayers and love and mercy to his friends and family and to everybody that knew him. And we're really sorry to hear about that. He was an incredible musician and a big part of what Brian Wilson was able to accomplish over the last 20 years. I've met Nikki a couple of times. He probably didn't remember me, but all the couple, two or three times I met him, um, sharp, brilliant, hilarious guy that I... You know, like a lot of his friends have posted on Facebook about his wit and his just ability um, to just contribute so much to the band, to the wonderments in, in that group. His knowledge of music apparently was astounding. And uh, it's a big loss to that band. And it's a big loss to just, you know, musicians, especially guys like me, like me and you, Wyatt, who are, you know, into a lot of the same kind of stuff. He, What I've read about him is... He was a guy who was really um, passionate about pushing forward the greatness of melodic pop and the stuff that we really dig. So, I mean, that's a big deal. But uh, the show goes on. You guys, as you know, Brian's going on a big tour starting uh, next week. So if you can, please go check him out. He's playing some shows with the zombies. And uh, I know that I I saw a rehearsal clip today of them working on friends the song friends which is pretty amazing i would love to hear that so excited for that and um i'm excited crazy excited to hear your guys's stories about all of that stuff um i wanted to give a couple shout outs to some folks that we got to meet recently um matthew doug tim david and jackson doug and susie kathy and her husband bob 
Ed Knutter and his family. Everybody, thank you guys for coming out and saying what's up. It's always great to meet more Beach Boys fans and share stories and beverages and all that good stuff. We got a lot of emails that we are trying to get through. I got some great ones for today. Um, been trying to get through these Pet Sounds emails, so got some fun ones for today. The first one is from Kevin Pajor. He says, it's impossible to pick one favorite song from this album. There's a very good case to be made that Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows are the two best, as well as being the two most famous. They were the recessional and first dance music, respectively, at my wedding. Nice! But I think, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times is just as important as those. Totally. I discovered Pet Sounds when I was starting to get into the classics of rock and pop. I had gotten really into the Beatles and seeing this album rivaling Sgt. Pepper on the Rolling Stone list had me take notice. I'd known most of the hits since I was a kid. My parents had the Endless Summer CD, and I listened to it a lot during school vacations, but this was something else. It didn't grab me my first couple listens, but a few months later I came back to it and fell in love. I was 16 years old, which is probably the absolute perfect time for a person to discover pet sounds. This song in particular, equal parts vulnerable and self-aggrandizing, was a perfect fit for a young guy who fancied himself a romantic and an intellectual but didn't actually have any idea what was going on. In my English class, one of our final projects was to create a soundtrack of a lifetime. Ten songs, each by a different artist, that represent who we are. This song was my Beach Boys entry. It's not necessarily a song that I seek out on its own, or that immediately pops into my head when I think about my favorite songs of Brian's, but when it comes on in the album, it's just perfect. And this is to say nothing of the incredible layering and production. An absolute gem and the most glorious of crowns. Thank you for creating such a great podcast. Just trying to figure out if I should listen to the series now or wait until the run-up to my second Pet Sound show in June. Thanks, Kevin. I really, I think the thing that struck me the most with your email there, Kevin, is talking about how you put that song on your soundtrack of a lifetime. Um, I think that this song, in a lot of ways, for a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, a lot of people too, especially a lot of Beach Boys fans, is kind of a life song for them. It's a it's a slogan that they identify themselves with. Um, for talking about, I just made wasn't made for these times. So, I think that's a theme that Brian put forth in this, you know, through a lot of all the songs on Pet Sounds, but it's something that a lot of people resonate with. So it's really cool you had that on your soundtrack of your life. I concur. I would put it on the soundtrack of my lifetime too. Um, but we'll get into all that later. But thank you very much for the comments and thanks for writing in, Kevin. Next up is an email from Norway from Rick Baki. Hi, Wyatt and Jason. Since I came across it on a pure whim in early February, I've been listening to your podcast with no small degree of fervor. It's been interesting to hear you examine the Beach Boys history in such exacting detail, much of which I've voraciously studied through the years. I'm very impressed. I've thought a lot about what to write because it turns out my Beach Boys story isn't that different from most of the others who've written or left voice messages. But I can start by saying my doorway into the Beach Boys came when I was 13 in the form of Made in the USA compilation, which my dad bought on CD when it came out. I soon discovered he had also a copy of Endless Summer on his CD collection, and I can still feel what it was like to hear all those great songs back then. 
I wasn't yet to understand the depth of Brian's work, but those records were good for instilling sunny optimism in the young teen I used to be. In my mid-teens, I discovered Dad's fairly decent array of Beach Boys vinyl, and after listening to Pet Sounds in late 1988 and 2020 and early 89, I spent a lot of the summer of 89 devouring all summer long Wild Honey and Friends. I've always loved to sing and could never resist adding my voice to the songs as I listened. Then high school was upon me. Some rain clouds set in. I gradually felt a bit lost and began to wonder about the purpose of my existence. I was 16 or 17 years old and much more troubled than I should have been. It didn't lead me onto a bad scene, but I couldn't seem to get a grip on who I was, let alone who I was going to be. I remember listening to Smiley Smile in the dead of winter 1990 and feeling its eerie atmosphere perfectly soundtracking a very displaced phase of my young life. That is perfect. Then the Capital CD Twofers came along and I dove right in. That's when some of the individual songs of Pet Sounds found me for real. I thought I was alone in feeling connected to Brian's feelings through I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, but he touched the heart of the world with that song. Across the nations and the generations. You Still Believe In Me also tapped into my general sense of melancholy, and when he sang I Wanna Cry, I wanted to weep right along with him. Before I was even born, I felt Brian somehow understood me from that temporal and literal distance. Around that time, I found what are my two favorite albums, Sunflower and Surf's Up. It's like every possible human emotion has a place across them. I'm so grateful they exist. Whether it's all I want to do, this whole world, till I die, or the amazing moment in history that is Surf's Up. I'd love to talk more about it, but I think this is already shaping up to be a book before I'm done. So I'll just say that is my idea of life altering. After that, my appreciation for the records does wane. But there are, of course, exceptions beyond Sunflower and Surf's Up. All this is that from Carl and the Passions. Carl's the traitor on Holland are 70s highlights for me. I also rather like most of the 1985 album. Sure, it's got a couple of warts on it, but I like the effort and it's got some pretty decent tunes. It's getting late, maybe I don't know, and where I belong stand out for me. So I've always understood what incredible strengths Brian possessed, but I'm going to credit your podcast with getting me to pay even closer attention to the details of his brilliance. I just got through listening to your episode on You Still Believe in Me, and I used to think it was a fairly straightforward, uncomplicated song, but it's really amazingly constructed. The guitar parts you demonstrated alone are simply astounding. I've heard you talk about how some might want to criticize your love of everything, Beach Boys, but you sure don't come off as fake. I think folks like yourselves are the right kind to do this. Your knowledge of the music in general, combined with your deep affection, is perfect for it. I thank you for your honesty and for doing this with every morsel of your hearts. I'll be along for the ride no matter how many years you take to complete the work, if you ever do. All my best, Rick Baki. Oh, and P.S. Your I Can't Believe It's Not the Beach Boys bonus episode was fascinating. I have to admit I wasn't expecting to enjoy the content too much as I find most attempts at capturing the Brian Wilson sound wanting, but you guys picked some good stuff. Again, I'm going to go back to I just wasn't made for these times because that's what we're going to talk about. So this thing in here you just said that, you know, he touched the world with that song. And I think it's interesting as we've been kind of talking, me and Wyatt have talked a little bit and done, and Wyatt's done a ton of research. And I did a little bit of listening over the last few days, especially uh, to that song. And uh, I've got a lot to say about it, but I will say that judging by the amount of covers I found of that song, it's touched a lot of people so pretty excited and i'm glad that it you know hit home hits home with you as does the rest of the catalog great to hear from you 
All right, our last email is from Wes Cassidy. Jason and Wyatt, hey guys, loving the podcast. I was going to wait until I was completely caught up before I emailed you, but since I have so much to discuss, I figured it is going to take multiple emails anyway. My commute to work is around two hours a day, so I can usually get in two podcasts, and I'm getting ready to start the Pet Sound series, and I can't wait. To be honest, when I first heard about your podcast, I was hesitant because all I thought was, what are they going to discuss that I haven't already heard a million times? Boy, was I wrong. You guys really provide some in-depth information that even hardcore fans like myself have missed or just never put together. What else is cool is how you take a full episode to break down each record. It kind of slows them down for me and puts them into perspective. The other fantastic thing with this podcast is that since you are both musicians, you truly appreciate the complicated bass lines, song arrangements, and chord structures that Brian Wilson has created. Because disguised behind those sweet harmonies and simple song themes are very complex pieces of music. And once you try to play it, I think you learn to appreciate it in a different way. So on to how I became a Beach Boys fan. I've been a hardcore Beach Boys fan since sometime around 1981 or 82. I was 13 or 14 at the time, and my brother went on a college scouting trip to Florida and came back with the Endless Summer Cassette. See, this is a common thing that I didn't, you know, try and put together these emails, but all three of these guys really were introduced by, in some way, the Endless Summer record. And they weren't even of the generation that, you know, was first hearing it when it came out. So that's just the ripple and waves of that album just continued to reverberate. Anyway, I had heard Good Vibrations via the Sunkissed commercial and had probably heard several more of their songs, but without remembering when or where. Ironically, Good Vibrations was not even on that cassette release. Anyway, I popped the tape in and after the first listen, I ended up listening to that cassette every night for months with my prized Sony Walkman by my side as I drifted off to sleep. I remember sitting for hours on end in front of our large cabinet stereo speaker with a pen and paper trying to decipher the lyrics. Keep in mind this was before the internet made this task easy. For the longest time I honestly thought the opening to Spirit of America was the boil of this Southland had seen some strange things. For the next several years I ended up going to all the musical stores and local malls around town desperately trying to find more from this band. Some were amazing finds to me, like Little Deuce Coop and Shut Down Volume 2, and others just confused me at the time, like Pet Sounds and Smiley Smile. Most of their stuff was just hard to find, not to mention it wasn't cool at the time to walk into a music store and ask for the Beach Boys. I remember ordering 10 years of Harmony, Spirit of America, Sunshine Dream, and others through the RCA and Columbia House Record Clubs. I probably still owe them money. Well, we probably all do, buddy. Any cassettes or records with the Beach Boys name on it were must-have purchases for me, which usually means lots of compilations, since Capital was fond of that practice. I always remember buying my goldmine magazines and corresponding with the people by snail mail in order to purchase and trade rare Beach Boys stuff. Unlike your podcast, we were afraid to use the term bootlegs back then in public. Since I have been collecting for a while, I probably have close to three or four hundred Beach Boys and Beach Boys-related albums in my collection including 30 or so live albums from 70 to 79. Whoa. I will try to get a list together and send to you guys. Maybe there's something you're looking for. Anyway, this is how my obsession with the Beach Boys got started. I guess I have to thank my brother for that. He likes the Beach Boys, but not obsessively like me, which is why he probably conceded his Endless Summer cassette to me. I still have that cassette, although the last time I played it, I remember it having a warble to it, and most of the track listing has been rubbed off. Endless Summer is bittersweet for me, and probably for a lot of fans. Without it, I may never have discovered the Beach Boys. 
But now as a fan who has studied their history, I'm also aware that this album most likely put the nail in the coffin of the creative Beach Boys and in turn launched the traveling oldies act that we now know so well. I have seen the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson in concert many times and will hit some of my personal highlights in another email. I also have a lot of controversial topics to throw out there. That's another email as well. Thanks again and keep up the great work. Wes Cassidy. You're going to have to somehow send me all those bootlegs because I need to hear all those 70s concerts as as I discuss at length, um, ad nauseum, whatever you want to say on this show. Uh, I really love that era of the band, especially the live stuff. It's really fascinating to me and it gets me excited to play guitar. So um, yeah, man, send it to Wyatt and me and I won't tell anybody that you have bootlegs. It's cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that stuff's probably been floating around uh, online, but there's there's a possibility that you've got some stuff that hasn't been digitized yet, um, which is always exciting. So, I mean, send us a list at least. But um, I love, again, that you mentioned Endless Summer, and I think we're obviously going to touch on that eventually, but I think it was a really interesting choice, um, for the Beach Boys at the time to go along with. And it also, in my opinion, was one of the the reasons that the Beach Boys were able to keep going as a band. It was a necessary evil in a lot of ways, and it also brought a lot of you guys into the Beach Boys fandom and the Beach Boys family. So, you know, I think it's a great thing in the end that, uh, that they chose to put out a greatest hits record, you know, basically, you know, just over 10 years into their career that was uh you know their biggest record that they ever did but uh we'll get into that much farther down the line and uh thanks again wes i know you've written us again already so i wanted to get your first email out of the way and i do appreciate how thorough you are and all the nice things you said again thank you very much really makes what we do possible um having you guys touch on um all these different aspects and that makes us want to keep going so really appreciate it um So I wanted to first off get into a really interesting interview I had with a good friend, Jonathan Pushkar. He has some great stories about Hal Blaine. He got to meet him and spend some time with him in the last few weeks of his life. So uh, I really wanted to have him on to talk about not only himself and his, you know, various projects and all that, but I wanted to share with you guys his stories about Hal. Southern California in the early 60s, man, it was a lot of fun. A lot of surfing, drag races, and riding the surf. So wax up your board, and let's hang 10 with the Beach Boys. Guys, I'm here with my good buddy, Jonathan Pushkar. What's up, Jonathan? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Of course, man. I've been wanting to get you on here for a minute um, because 
you have some awesome stories and you have some awesome taste in music and we've always kind of shared uh beach boys love and um i wanted to kind of let everyone else in on uh what you've been doing as well so um for those of you that don't know jonathan is a nashville musician among many other things um i met him a few years back when he moved here um because he had heard a record that I produced and he reached out to me and we've been talking ever since. And he's a much younger guy than me, but he's into the same era of music, mostly uh, mid sixties, late sixties music. And uh, especially the Beatles, kind of the um, quintessential band in his world. Right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Them and the wonders. <laughs> yeah. Them and the wonders. But yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about like what brought you to Nashville and then how you got so into not only the Beach Boys, but just the 60s music in general. Yeah, for sure. So I moved to Nashville in 2014 uh, to go to school at Belmont University. And I just finished up there, graduated in 2018. So time flies pretty crazy. But I enjoyed my time at Belmont. It was really great. I studied public relations with a minor in music business. And uh, it was really great. And the cool thing there is meeting all kinds of different people that are into different music. Uh, and, you know, I guess I would stand out to a lot of people for being into older music. You know, you meet a lot of John Mayer fans and stuff like that. Yep. Not that they're bad people, but, you know, when you meet your Beatles and Beach Boys people, you stick together, and that's the case. So that's what brought me here to Nashville, uh, really loving it. And it's cool. You know, of course, Salon is based here, and there's lots of Beatle and Beach Boy activity, and... A lot of those guys tour through here, too, so it's really cool. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania originally, and some of those guys come through, but it seems like everybody that goes on tour has a stop somewhere drivable to Nashville. So that's one of the really cool things about uh, living here. And how I got into that music is a lot like most of us, at least those of us in the younger spectrum. Uh, my dad took me to, like, kindergarten listening to the Beatles' one album just over and over and over again. So... You know, it was really the only music I got the chance to listen to as a young kid and just got ingrained into my uh, musical vocabulary, I guess. But it wasn't until a lot later that I actually got into the Beach Boys. I mean, of course, growing up, you know, you hear the hits on oldies radio and whatnot. But uh, for me, it was actually wasn't really till like freshman year of high school. I was really into collecting vinyl. I guess I still am, but that's when I really got into it. And uh, I picked up Pet Sounds. It was like one of the remastered copies because, you know, they're pretty difficult to find at yard sales and whatnot. So I picked up the remastered Pet Sounds on vinyl. And, uh, you know, basically I just got it because you hear everybody say how great it was. And I hadn't heard anything, but God only knows. And wouldn't it be nice until that point? And I listened to it the first time. And I'll never forget, like, being like, man, this album's so sad. Like, who would be into this? It's really, really sad, you know. <laughs> I'm a chipper freshman in high school and just like, you know, full of life. And I guess you can hear it in my voice. I'm still kind of that way. But, uh, you know, it was just so depressing and sad. But, you know, I didn't want to write it off after one listen. And another listen turned into two, turned into ten, turned into hundreds at this point. And, I mean, it really is just one of the greatest records of all time. I mean, I know this is a Beach Boys podcast, so it's kind of preaching to the choir. But... It's just one of those albums that completely in reinvents itself every time you listen to it, especially when you listen to, like, you know, the Dolby Master or Mono or Stereo, and you go back. I mean, it's, it just is continually amazing how the same piece of music, you know, collective piece of music, that is, 
can just reinvent itself so many times depending on where you are in life, what mix you're listening to. It's just incredible. And that's really where the Beach Boys rabbit hole opened up for me. And I've not seen the light at the end of that tunnel since. I'm just, I'm so far down the rabbit hole. It's just, it's, well, I'd say it's pitiful, but on this podcast, you know, probably with a lot of people in the same boat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people that will be listening to this live at the bottom of the rabbit hole, so you don't have to worry about it. It's very... um it's accepted around these parts. This is a safe space. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a dark place, but it's comfortable. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's probably obvious, but what's your favorite Beach Boys record? Is it Pet Sounds, or do you have a, a close, you know, runner-up? I mean, I think the knee-jerk is, of course, Pet Sounds is, like, the best record, but I actually really like All Summer Long. I think that's actually my favorite uh, Beach Boys record, start to finish. Um, it just really hits that slightly cheesy side of 60s pop that I'm really, really into. And um, I really, really love the song We'll Run Away. My God, that is just such a cool song. And I would do anything to see either iteration of the live Beach Boys do that song live. But I just, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But it's an amazing, amazing song that to me really captures that youthful innocence. But it's also kind of like a precursor to when I grow up too with, and even... um, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Like Brian had just such a way of planting himself in his youthfulness at the time, but also having the foresight to like see himself as an older adult and like wishing for that, but not wanting to get rid of the youthfulness that he had. And I think that we'll run away is really a forgotten gem that is just amazing. I just, I love that song and I love that whole record. Yeah. It's awesome. It's the, it's, it's kind of the end of an era for the for the beach boys um it's kind of i don't know it kind of it kind of reminds me a lot of um hard day's night by the beatles kind of also the end of the the early era for the beatles you know kind of came out very close to each other um and i love all summer long it's in my top five beach boys records yeah it's just so good so many great tracks on there and um You know, it's cool that you mentioned A Hard Day's Night because for me, like in my head, progressing through the 60s, like the major albums, I kind of think of like A Hard Day's Night and then All Summer Long and then Help. You know, it's like sandwiched in between them. It's it's really fascinating that, you know, the Beatles and the Beach Boys are really two of the only bands from the 60s that, in my opinion, were album bands. Of course, you have a couple Stones albums that were really big, and you have the Zombies, of course, with Odyssey and Oracle. But a lot of times when you look at songs from the 60s, like, look at, like, Paul Revere and the Raiders, for example. Tons of great songs, but nobody's going to have a podcast talking about Paul Revere albums, right? So, like... There are so many singles bands in the 60s, but the Beatles and the Beach Boys and, you know, by honorable mention, the Stones and Zombies are really the only bands that have stood the test of time being album bands. And, uh, you know, to that point, really see Hard Day's Night all summer long and then Help is like a little library of albums. Yeah, to answer your question in a very long way, all summer long is my favorite Beach Boys album. Yeah, man, I don't think anybody can argue with that. It's... it's uh... It's awesome. It's got um, a few of my favorite Beach Boys songs. Obviously, um, I get around. I mean, it was the song that it was the song that that knocked the Beatles out of the top spot. Yeah, that is just. And I've I've been thinking about the inevitable question, which I'm sure will come up: is what's the favorite Beach Boys song? And I <laughs> I, I get around has to be up there, man. Just that nice. like almost sort of false start at the start. Dun, brown, red. I mean, yeah. it's just. So good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, especially if you think about all of the 
think about the collaborations that Brian has done with people. And if you know the story of how I Get Around was written with Mike and that Mike came up with round, round, get her, like that was all Mike Love. And that is what makes the song, when it comes on the radio, it's like, boom. It's like, you know, there's no, there's no missing it. You know, it's just like, oh God, like this song is going to be special. Like, I'm sure we all have those songs that just kind of make your heart stop for just a second with just knocking you out as soon as they come in, you know, like help from the Beatles being one, you know, it just drops and you're into the song. And there's just something about, I get around and I've always felt this way, even since I was a kid and didn't really think about music that hard. There are just certain songs that as soon as they're over, you just want to hear them again. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a lost art in music now, you know, especially with like Spotify, you could just swipe to the next song five seconds in if you're not into it. But you know, think about back in the day when you would have to buy a 45. Like, if you're standing in the middle of, you know, the department store and you're trying to decide which 45 you're going to get, you're going to buy the one that you can listen to over and over and over and over again because it might be the only song you buy that month. And, I mean, I get around. It's just so great. Even the way it, you know, ends, you just want to pick up the needle and put it back to the beginning. And, uh, you know, that energy is just so impossible to capture, you know, like, I haven't gone super deep into like outtakes for Beach Boys stuff like that, but I wonder if every take was as energetic as the one that they did. Cause you know, you hear live tracks and stuff like that and it's pretty energetic too, but there's just something about the performance on the actual, I get around single that is just undeniably great. It's just great. I'm going to back pretty much any, any Beach Boys record that somebody wants to say is their favorite, but that one especially. I mean, I love that record. Well, my next favorite one is the NASCAR promotional CD, so <laughs> you better be Man, ready I cannot to wait to get. I cannot wait till I get to break down that album track by track. That's going to be great. Um, but yeah, uh, so let's get in. Let's drop some names, all right? Like you've met a bunch of really awesome musicians from that era. Thanks. Somehow yes. or I've another. Been, I've been very fortunate. I've met so, a lot of my heroes. Um, but I wanted to specifically talk about Hal Blaine. Yes. Rest in peace. Yeah. So tell us how you got this opportunity and then just go ahead and lay it out for us. Sure. So as Wyatt mentioned, I'm a musician. Uh, but in addition to that, I also do social media marketing for musicians, actors, entertainment personalities, all of those fun types of people. And one of the guys that I have the privilege to work with is rock photographer Rob Shanahan. And um, he shoots for Aerosmith, for Ringo, for The Stones. So like, you know, all the greatest of the greats. And um, he shot Hal Blaine. And uh, for DW, DW did an icon series snare on how, and uh, it's themed to like the Wrecking Crew movie branding, and it's really cool. And Rob got to shoot how with the icon snare. And uh, long story short, Rob and how really hit it off, and I wasn't there for that initial shoot, but uh, Rob got invited to come back to Hal's place and hang out, and a couple of us went, and uh, we documented the hangout. And you know, how was eighty nine at the time? Of course, he turned 90 and then passed away not too terribly long after but uh you know how was 89 at the time and as we were driving out to palm springs where he lived we were thinking all right we'll get to hang out with him for an hour or two you know we, we're not going to overstay our welcome he's going to be tired and whatnot and we showed up to his house and he's standing out on the lawn waiting for us and he's got a zildjian a black zildjian t-shirt tucked into a pair of jeans and he's got a hat on it with the clock and drumsticks as the hands on the clock, it says, <laughs> uh, it said something like, I can tell time. 
like just you know yep beautiful beautiful yeah. and if you if you watch Hal in the wrecking crew movie you know and you see his personality this shouldn't come as any surprise that this is the way he is so we pull up and he's standing there on the lawn <laughs> waiting for us and we get out of the car and he goes you know you boys are five minutes late and we're like oh sorry you know and he goes you know how i can tell and he points to his hat <laughs> <laughs> and right off the bat, we knew we were going to have a great time. So he walks us in his front door, and he's got this wall in his hallway, and it's just decked out with signed photos from all the people he's worked with, you know, memorabilia, just unbelievable. And then we take a left, and we walk into his living room. And if anybody listening is fortunate enough to have their grandparents still alive, Hal's living room is exactly what your grandparents' living room looks like. You know, just leather recliner chair. He's got wine glasses stacked up behind uh, behind him on, like, a shelf. You know, a big TV with, like, law and order on. You know, it's just, like, exactly what you'd expect. But his whole house has memorabilia in it. He had a great swimming pool in the back. And uh, he sat down in his chair and... We just kind of talked with him, and we documented the whole talk. We had a uh, film crew there to film it, and it was really beautiful. And you know, we were talking, of course, about the DW snare and all of that. But we started just to talk about his legacy and his career. And we would ask him a question and say, you know, how who who is it that stands out to you that you got to work with? And you know, we assumed it'd be like, oh, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and he'd talk for like. 45 minutes answering the question just going through and through and through and the whole day ended up being like almost nine hours when it was all said and done and he took us to dinner and uh it was really really amazing we went to this place that was it's not a hard rock cafe but it's like you know like a mom and pop version of a hard rock cafe and we're sitting there and on the radio they're playing all these songs and it's like, oh, my God, like he's played on so many of these songs that are playing while we're having dinner and nobody here knows who he is. You know, that's amazing. It, it was really amazing. But I've got to say, he was just the sweetest, funniest guy. A everything he said just made you smile because you're like, I can't believe this guy was there or he just told some dirty joke that made you laugh. I mean, he was that kind of guy, but some of the memorabilia in his house was just amazing. He had a signed photo from Mike Nesmith as soon as he walked in saying, you know, to the greatest drummer I've ever worked with. He had a uh, he had a snare drum head that he used with Frank Sinatra that Frank signed to him. Really cool. He had wow. um, all kinds of Dean Martin stuff. And then back in his hallway, like, back headed toward his office he had this great letter he had two things from brian but he had this great letter uh from the 90s before the pet sounds reissue came out and it's written exactly how brian talks so maybe he just dictated it to someone or you know he typed it out or whatever but he said hey how i heard the new pet sounds mix and man it's really rocking you know like you can hear brian saying that you know i can't wait for you to check this out da 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 and it's really cool and of course brian signed it and then there was this eight by ten of brian like kind of like leaning in you know with a big grin and signed to how and all that so all kinds of beach boy stuff so cool the thing that cracked me up the most that relates to the beach boys about how on that day was we were talking about all the people he's worked with i mean you know if uh, probably listening to this podcast, this isn't the first you've heard of Hal, but the Mamas and the Papas, the Beach Boys, the Monkees, I mean, pretty much any American hit record of the 60s, Hal had something to do with it, and that's not an overstatement to say, but we were talking about all the people that he worked with, and we were talking about, you know, the Monkees and the Beach Boys and all of that, and uh, 
we asked, you know, who are some of the best musicians that you ever worked with? And Hal kind of leaned forward and then leaned back and said, you know, I, I got to give it to that Alan Jardine kid. Man, he's just got to be the best guitar player I ever worked with. What such talent, really amazing songwriter. And I'm like, Al, really? You know, like, like you worked with Tommy Tedesco and Al's the guitar player you're going to. But, <laughs> uh, and then he started talking about the monkeys. So I can't help but wonder if he was thinking Mike Nesmith, but he said mm. Al Jardine. Hmm. I don't know, because I could believe Mike Nesmith, you know, being one of yeah. the more talented songwriters and guitar players that he worked with. I could believe that, and Al's my favorite Beach Boy, so I'm certainly not throwing him under but the bus. But he didn't play on any songs that Al wrote, did he? I'm trying to think. I, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, you would have to go through the archives, but... I don't think so. That's the only thing that Hal said that, like... I'm getting eight emails right now about... Uh, yeah, well, actually, he did, he... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. No, but I don't think Al had any songs on any of the records that uh, that Hal played on on the for the Beach Boys. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it it makes you wonder, and you know, maybe Al was just like this cheery kid that Hal really liked, and he wasn't. You know, unfortunately, we can't go back and ask Hal what his thoughts were. Like, did you really mean Al or whatever? But hey, if Al's listening to this podcast, Hal Blaine said you're his favorite guitar player he worked with. So kudos. But. uh in any case, yeah, so that was an amazing day. And then we said goodbye to Hal. He took some pictures with us. He signed some stuff for us just gratuitously. And um, it was really cool. And then we figured, all right, well, you know, we'll see Hal again at some point. And just a couple weeks later, Hal's nephew reached out to Rob Shanahan, the photographer I mentioned earlier, and said, hey, we're going to throw a 90th birthday party for Hal at the Baked Potato, which, of course, is the jazz club that the Wrecking Crew guys used to hang out at after their sessions. And he said, I told Hal that we could invite, you know, maybe 50, 60 people to come to this party because the Baked Potato is a really small room. And he said, who do you want to invite? And he started going down the list of people. And then Hal said, hey, how about those video guys we just had? And so Hal's nephew, Michael, said, would you guys want to come? And we talked about it and we're like, oh, my God, like, yes, Hal Blaine's 90th birthday party. You know, we're there. So. We all flew back out. Well, Rob lives in L.A. I'm in Nashville, of course, and our video guys are in Minnesota. So we all flew out. We met in L.A., and we actually filmed Hal's birthday party. So we have all of it documented, and um, it's really incredible. You know, we got there, and we started setting up our audio and video gear, and there was kind of this, like, murmur in the room. You know how sometimes you can just, like, feel in a room that something's brewing? and Sure. We started just talking to people there, and the word on the street was Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones was going to make a surprise appearance and come say hi to Hal. And uh, we were all like, wow, that's pretty cool, man, to get a Rolling Stone to show up at your birthday party. You got to be pretty special, but Hal was certainly that guy. So they had a house band, and of course, the music consisted of all songs that Hal played on. And there were some great L.A. session guys there, including my good friend Bill Sinke, who uh, plays with Neil Diamond and Peter Asher and all of the British Invasion guys. He's an amazing guy. And uh, he was on vocals that night. And, you know, some guest musicians got up and played and stuff, but lots of lots of cool people there, like the DW Drums founders were there. Elliot Easton from The Cars, Denny Sywell from Wings, Chad Smith from Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, it was like all of these drummers that, you know, Hal inspired. And then Hal became friends with these guys, and they were at the birthday party. So it was really cool to look around and, you know, see all the different generations and genres that Hal inspired. But 
the most special part of the night is he actually got up and played. Um, I don't know the last time that he has performed publicly before that, but of course he ended up passing away just a few short weeks later. So this was the last time he performed publicly and he got up and he played his two favorite songs. He said, these are his two favorite songs that he recorded on and they did. These boots were made for walking and they did be my baby. But, you know, it's really special. It was amazing being like five feet from Hal and hearing. Yeah. Having him go in. And it was just special because, again, you know, Hal isn't really a guy that played live a ton other than like with Nancy Sinatra. And it's some one off things here and there. So to watch him do his thing was just really, really incredible. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I don't think that grateful is a word that even is adept for saying the emotion that I feel for, you know, having gotten to be there and having gotten to befriend to whatever, befriend how to whatever level you want to call it. You know, it's just, you know, to have that moment with him right before his passing was just really special. And as a drummer myself, you know, drums are really my primary instrument. It was really cool to shake his hand and you know, get to spend time with him on two occasions and get to tell him, you know, that he's inspired me as much from behind the drum kit as he has in front. I mean, I think if we all could be as uh, grateful, gracious, funny as how the world would be a better place. And um, like I said, I just I don't even think that there's a word to explain the level of gratitude I feel for having gotten to spend, you know, the time that I did with him. And uh, it was really amazing. And I'm happy to talk about it here. We are getting into the era now. We're getting into um, a time where we're going to be losing a lot of these people, which is which is crazy. Um, but um, that's just the reality of it. Um, and and we just lost um, Nicky Wonder, which is kind of crazy. Like he he's you know he's one of those guys that you just think is is a young guy that's going to be doing this for a long time, and then you know all of a sudden he's gone. So it's just you never know, man. Like it's you never know when you're when the when the last time you're going to get to see these guys is. That's just why I tell everybody. Like that's why I take every opportunity to see Brian and every opportunity I to I get to see the Beach Boys because I mean it could be the last. You never know. Um, life is very fragile. Um, not to get into an existential somber place, but you know just take these opportunities when you can because nothing lasts forever. Um, we're very fortunate to have both Brian and the Beach Boys still touring. It's it's pretty amazing that these guys are pushing 80 years old. Yeah, say what you want about the two touring bands. You know, I know some people prefer one over the other, but you literally get double the chance to see the Beach Boys. You know, if, if yeah. you if you want to hear Day Tripper live, you have to go see Paul. You know, it's not like John yeah. Lennon's touring too, and you know you could. With the Beach Boys, you know, generally speaking, you get two chances every year or every other year to go and hear these great songs live, you know, and I'm very much a proponent of that. You know, anytime the Beach Boys or Brian are within driving distance, you know, I'm there. It's just, they're great shows. They're really amazing. The bands are great. And um, they're obviously two different shows for two different audiences, but 
Uh, if you're a Beach Boys fan, you've got to go see both shows. They're just unforgettable. Don't miss your chance. Yeah, man. Um, well, I want to before we before we wrap up here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about what you've been working on and what you got coming up. Cool. Well, thanks. And you uh, have vested interests. So Wyatt uh, produced my first album, which is so cool. I'm really honored to, um, you know, have my first record coming out. It's all 60s power pop, 12 string guitar driven stuff. And um, it, it was really fun, really an honor and uh, treat to do it with Wyatt. There's nobody else I would have rather had behind the mast producing it. And uh, it comes out September 27th, 2019. And can't wait for you guys to hear it. If you like 12 string guitars, this one's for you. I'm going to leave a note in the, in the uh, show notes um, of a link where you can um, pre-order the record um, and check out um jonathan's first two singles right so um by the time this comes out you'll have two songs out on streaming right that is true okay great so um my favorite track being isabella and i'm gonna th- i'm gonna throw in a little clip of that Here. all right And if anybody has Hal Blaine questions or anything, you can find me on social media, Jonathan Pushkar. Yeah, so that's Pushkar um, with a K, um, and it's pretty it's pretty easy to get a hold of him. He's awesome. He's very active on social media. He's a guy that um, that I think is it, I'm very I'm very proud to call a friend, and I'm glad that he was able to do this interview. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, and we'll we'll probably have you on again at some point, man. If you ever want to talk about anything, you can always come over, call in, whatever. Awesome. I want to be on the NASCAR CD episode. I'm telling you. All right. If you, I mean, don't don't get too far down that rabbit hole, man, because you know I'll ask you to do it, and it'll be you you may be you may not like what you wish for. No, no, I'm gonna love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Check out Jonathan's stuff, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, buddy. Sail on, sailors. He said, Mayor, I'm going to write, and I'm going to make the greatest rock album. That's when you know, things were starting to get a little bit heavier. And he, he just said, I'm going to do the greatest album. And he did it. I remember when the album was completely finished, and he brought home the demo disc of the album. And we just, you know, laid down on the bed and just listened. It was like heaven. I mean, he was so proud. All right, you can get the whole interview with Jonathan on our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash sailon. Wanted to say thanks to William Naylor, John Cassidy, and Ryan Luchuk for supporting the show. All right, so let's get into what we're going to talk about next, which is moving through pet sounds and today's topic is a song called i just wasn't made for these times boom this song was recorded at gold star recorders as you know that was phil Spector's favorite studio and it was known for their echo chamber 
and Brian really wanted a, a big ethereal ambient sound for this this song. Uh, a very introspective and emotional song that he wrote with Tony Asher. He brought the track in on February 14th, 1966. And it was engineered by Larry Levin. Nice. Seems like they had it pretty well rehearsed when the takes started. There were six takes, and uh, the track is led, in my opinion, by the melodic picked electric bass by Ray Pullman. It's over the top of the more subtle upright bass by Chuck Berghofer, and then also the bass harmonica played by Tommy Morgan. So there's that three bass concept that we've heard about before from a lot of people. Mike Melvoin plays this gorgeous ambient harpsichord, which I think is the signature sound of this track. It's bizarre, and it's, you know, as we say a lot, it's otherworldly. It's a sound that you don't really hear on records, especially in 1966 having that crazy kind of, you know, back and forth, reverby sound. Um, that's not an instrument that you would normally associate with with surf music or necessarily pop music. It was kind of an early Baroque pop sound. And then, of course, you've got Hal Blaine playing the drum kit, along with uh, Barney Kessel and then Glenn Campbell coming in on guitars. The first take, Glenn was playing banjo, actually. After which Brian said, I don't think that's the right sound for that. Do you have a Vox? And he's talking about a Vox uh, 12 string acoustic. So uh, that's when did Glenn say, switches say over. Vox or Box? I think he said Vox. Well, I was thinking he was saying, I've always thought, uh, point of contention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always thought that he said Box. Well, maybe you're right. That he but always thought- said Box because in, uh, in some, it, a long time ago, people used to call acoustic guitars Box guitars. Ah, well, I know so, that this. I know that in the '60s, the Vox Folk 12-string electric was a really big guitar. So I don't know. I thought maybe maybe, it was maybe he was talking about that. I don't. Know. I I felt like maybe he was. Now, did the banjo makes it into this track, doesn't it? No, it's no. in the it's it's in the session. For, that's it's in track what one. I, that's what I remember. Okay. One problem, Glenn. Glenn, uh, we're not picking up really many notes. I don't know if that's the right sound for this. Can you? Do you have a box? Yeah, yeah. Can you use a box right there? It'd be great. Now, this isn't going to make it. Take six, please. Well, either way, he switches to a 12-string acoustic. You know, then, of course, you've got the longing woodwinds that are prominent on some of these songs. Um, Plaz Johnson on piccolo, Steve Douglas, Bobby, Bobby Klein on clarinet, and then Jay Migliori, the band leader, on bass clarinet. And sometimes... I think lost behind the, the giant vocals in the chorus is this vibrant honky-tonk piano played by Don Randy, which is so cool. I remember the first time I heard the track for this, and I was like, what is that? I've never heard that piano before, and it's just so cool. And I'm, I hate that you know you 
you miss it when you hear the final version because the vocals are so prominent, but it is such a cool part. And then Frank Cap is playing temple blocks and cups with sticks, and it kind of imitates the uh, electric bass. Hal Blaine's also handling the timpani on this as well. So a really cool track, relatively simple track. Um, the chords are astonishing. It's very jazzy, very unlike anything Brian had ever written before. Again, of course, the bass playing and writing is really interesting. And there's some really cool kind of uh, counter melody things going on with the bass and also with the woodwinds. And then, you know, I figure the one other thing to talk about on this is the introduction of a brand new instrument. My, mom, my, my, dad, my dad and mom took me over to the, their friend's house who had a theremin, right? And the guy was playing it and I was scared to death of that sound. It really frightened me a lot. I, I got, really got scared, you know? I, I didn't want to hear that sound, you know? That theremin sound, that you know, that sound. It sounded like one of those horrible, scary movies where, you know, weird <laughs> trip, you know, weird yeah. facial expressions, weird, you know, it's almost sexual. That's perfect. So Brian called up UCLA music professor Paul Tanner to play as a session musician with the mistaken assumption that he was gonna play a theremin, but he actually was using an instrument that he created several years earlier called the Electro Theremin. Um, and uh, Tanner recalls the sessions being really unusual for what he was used to because Wilson uh, forewent the notation and just sang Tanner's part for him to play, and he played it back just as Brian sang it. And I think it's really interesting that Brian chose to use this because he did describe it as being something he was really scared of as a kid. But it also kind of makes sense once you hear the lyrics to the song, um, that this song is about being scared and kind of being about feeling uncertain and unsafe, um, doing what you love and, and expressing yourself. So, um, but it is such a beautiful instrument. It's so beautifully played. Um, and this is, as far as I know, the first instance of an electro theremin used in popular music so wyatt speaking of that electro theremin how many beach boy songs can you name have it uh i don't know i can think of like three or four i mean obviously good vibrations oh yeah uh wild honey uh-huh it's got to be on some smile stuff right it's on heroes and villains Pretty yeah heroes and villains uh, I mean, do you know the, the the others? I can't think of it off the top those of my head. Are, those are the ones I could think of immediately, so that's why I was asking if you were going to think of the same four that I was uh, thinking of. Yeah, I just couldn't I couldn't think of Heroes and Villains right off the top of my I, head, but I, I feel like it you, might be on some other. I bet you that it's on one more somewhere, so somebody needs to, to chime in on that. Hmm. I don't know, maybe not, though. Um, 
Yeah, those are the ones that I think of. Um, but yeah. And so I, and so I have two things. One other thing to say about that theremin sound. Yeah. I think that really opened up the door for um, some more of that influence, but also kind of opened up the door for synthesizer people because essentially that electrotheremin was a synthesizer. And there's a movie about synthesizers yeah. that Brian's in and he's super off his rocker in it, which is great. Um, the um, movie about the Moog synthesizers um, and he's in there talking about the electrotheremin, oh, yeah. which is awesome. But... You know, like I'm a big Turtles fan, and on one of their big hits is one of the first really audible, like before the Beatles used it on Abbey Road, like that synth sound, um, which is, but that to me, they were kind of trying to have a good vibration sound to it on You Showed Me. There's a little line in there. So um, I was just kind of, we kind of underestimate how essentially Brian has always been really cutting edge with synth people. So this is the beginning of that. In 1999, Tom Polk built a replica of the Paul Tanner theremin, and they called it the Tannerin, and that was built for Brian Wilson's solo tour. So, really cool. Our good friend, our good friend Clay White is buddies with the guy who built that repro. Oh, that's his, cool. With his son, and so we we talked about this at length uh, a few years ago. Me and Clay right. did how his dad, that guy's dad, showed clay like stuff about about it so i thought that was pretty rad i've seen a couple people play actual theremins before and it's kind of mind-blowing it's like i don't know it's like dancing it's just saying it's a strange it's a strange instrument and the electro theremin is a lot easier to play but it's still wild um yeah um you know mike love was playing it on their tours oh um, yeah yeah like when they were doing all kinds of stuff i love the first i have a i have a uh a recording of the first time they ever played good vibrations live and mike was oh, yeah. playing it and it's, and it's, it's hilarious because like he's like just a, he's struggling <laughs> to figure it out oh yeah it's like a it's like some, he's playing some uh some jazz some jazz odyssey. jazz yeah. odyssey yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing I wanted to say about the track is I do think that it is super unique and otherworldly. However, because it was totally recorded at Gold Star, and I know where Brian's head almost always was at at this time in terms of his main influence, not all of his influences, but his main, you can really hear some of For Once in My Life by the Righteous Brothers at the in sections of this track. And I think that's, part and parcel to the studio they were at and the engineer they had and the tempo. Um, but I totally hear the influence of that era, the, that which was kind of the current era where Spectre was at at that time when Brian was cutting that. So, you know, if you go listen to that, you know, the Righteous Brothers and the 65 Spectre stuff, um, kind of hear brian's got a little bit of that flavor and the on the front end of the song and then it obviously evolves to all these other great places we talked about but it's a super amazing track and i think it has a tiny tiny little bit um of uh phil in there so yeah obviously he loved that sound and um you can definitely get 
a great reverb sound in that studio and that's what he was looking for and then he would continue to use that studio as we move along through 1966 we'll get more into that obviously but um they uh went in to do the vocals originally on march 10th um at columbia studio a because as we've said before it was the only studio in hollywood that had an eight track analog tape recorder so they could do seven tracks of vocals um which is pretty amazing uh a nice uh sandbox for brian to play in but um they weren't satisfied with those vocals uh, if you listen to the alternate version of this song on the pet sounds box set you can hear that uh, it was a little rough and i think brian was straining too hard and kind of forcing the vocal and just before they mastered pet sounds it was i think the second to last session they ever did on wednesday april 13th they went back into columbia and did the vocals for a second time and this was the master take i keep looking for a place to fit in where i can speak my mind and I've been trying hard to find the people that I won't leave behind. They say I got brains, but they ain't doing So you've got Brian double tracking the lead vocal, and then Brian kind of answering himself in the choruses. And then you've got all six Beach Boys doing the backing vocals, the ooze, and then the Spanish vocals, which we'll get into in a minute. Sometimes I feel very sad. Sometimes I feel very sad. Sometimes I feel very sad. Originally, I think either at the April 13th uh, session or on the March 10th session, they tracked Dennis doing the lead vocal. And I know people have disputed this before. I've seen people argue about it, but I am absolutely 100% convinced that Dennis at some point recorded a lead vocal because Brian kept um, a few small syllables of Dennis's performance and blended it with his own. So if you listen to the end of the phrase, um, uh, where he says behind and then wrong and found at the end of uh, like the verses. Um, you can hear Brian blend in Dennis's voice and uh, it's pretty astounding if you've never heard it before. places where new things might be found. Where can I turn? Yeah, I always, I always have noticed that and I always love that. It's so cool and... Um, I think I read one I read one review where somebody said Brian is evoking his brother Dennis in this performance and I was kind of chuckled because it's like yeah I mean he wanted to and I think it would be cool to hear Dennis sing this although it's a little bit out of Dennis's range and I think Dennis would have been a little too forceful but Brian uh, loved those certain syllables and the certain notes I think he just couldn't hit it just like Dennis did just the emotional quality of Dennis's voice um, was really what Brian wanted for that. So it's really cool and it's seamless. It doesn't sound abrasive when you hear 
those certain parts slip in and out, but really neat. But of course, you know, Brian has a very nice performance here, very jazzy, very great melody. Um, Brian nails a B flat in his full voice on the pre-chorus, which is one of the coolest things I've ever heard Brian sing. Um, this was the peak of his uh, vocal abilities, in my opinion, um, early 1966. He kind of, he with his voice there, you know, he kind of lost some of the boyish sound and sounded a little more like an adult, but still had that great range. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Brian says, this is about a guy who was crying out because he thought he was too advanced and that he'd eventually have to leave people behind. All my friends thought I was crazy to do pet sounds. Tony Asher says, in many of the songs where Brian would express a feeling, I would say, oh yeah, I've had those feelings. Maybe in not the same way or the same degree, but I understood them. But this one I didn't relate to. It was more trying to interpret what he was feeling than having this joint feeling in our various ways. I remember when we finished the song, I had the sense that it might not end up on the album. It takes a lot of courage for an artist to expose himself in such a personal way. Lots of times you question why you're doing something or whether it's any good. I thought maybe Brian would not want to make such a raw emotional public statement, but he did, and it took a lot of guts. So the lyrics here are very personal for Brian, and I think you really can get a good picture of where Brian was at the time. Um, he was a lot of times alone in the studio during this period. Um, you know, even though he was surrounded by musicians and um, colleagues and engineers and family, um, his band and his family and his best friends were gone for a lot of that time. And they also didn't really resonate with what he was doing. So I think he always wanted to fit in and feel like he was part of the band and, and, and be loved. And, but he also had so much to say and he also wanted them to appreciate it and be part of it. You know, he says, each time things start to happen again, I think I got something good going for myself, but what goes wrong? Sometimes I feel very sad. And then he answers himself. And this is almost to me like, you know, you know, the inner voices that he's talked about before, um, which sometimes were very scary, but he, he's kind of saying to himself, can't find the right thing I can put my heart and soul into. And then he also says, um, people I know don't want to be where I'm at. Uh, so it's a really touching song and a great sentiment. And it's Brian, you know, putting his heart on his sleeve again, uh, as he does on this album many times. And it's one of the reasons this album is so phenomenal. And, you know, besides just the amazing performances and musicality and the, uh, the writing involved, this song is, is an expression of who Brian was at this specific time. And I think some of the best songs that ever were written, you know, have that same quality. Um, and this is, in my opinion, one of the best songs ever written, period, by anybody. Um, oh, yeah. It's my favorite song on Pet Sounds. Whoa. Yeah. I keep looking for a place to fit in where I can speak my mind. I've been trying hard to find the people that I won't leave behind. They say I got brains, but they ain't doing me no good. I wish they could. 
If I could give this anything higher than a 10, I would. Nothing can touch this song. And as much as I love God Only Knows and Wouldn't It Be Nice and Don't Talk, this song is my favorite song on Pet Sounds. And I think it it's the one that, that I resonate with the most, but it's also just such a sweet, sweet, pretty song. It's just so easy to listen to, and um, it's so interesting. There's many layers to it. Um, as I mentioned before, there's these backing vocals that I never really understood when I was first listening to the song, but many years later um, found out that they were in Spanish. So uh, in the chorus, and I think Bruce um, translated these, but it says, Oh, cuando seré un día seré, which means when will I be one day I will be. And I remember the first time that somebody told me about that and, and when it, you know, it was already one of my favorite songs and they told me about this and it just kind of, like blew me away. I just couldn't believe that they were actually Spanish lyrics going on there. I just, I, I don't know what I thought it was, but it definitely wasn't that. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. So this song, like I was kind of saying earlier, is kind of been adopted by a lot of different people as kind of an anthem for their life or a thing, a thing they kind of really gravitate toward. And in a strange way, it's kind of, you know, an anthem or a theme song for people that feel kind of lonely and or feel um, different from uh, society or their friends or other artists or whatever you want to say, wherever they are at. I think that's a kind of a con- common landing point on this song. Um, and it's it's a I think it's a big thing that a lot of super duper Brian fanatics also really resonate with. They kind of feel like, oh well, I felt that way too, Brian. You know, I felt like I'm 
totally out of place. And, you know, there's a great movie, uh, Woody Allen movie, um, Midnight in Paris. And in that movie, it kind of talks about someone who kind of lives for the past and lives out of time. And this song is one of those songs. Could be the future, could be the past, but a lot of people that identify with this song, much like the character in that movie, you know, they kind of all connect in that way. And so I think that's what's really special about this song. So all that to say, it's definitely a 10 out of 10 for me as well, because it's a very special, very special song. I love so much about this song. I mean, it, there's there's so many, like I said, there's so many details that just keep uncovering themselves to me. And I'm so fortunate, and we are all so fortunate to have all these resources, these sessions, um, these first-hand accounts of recording this song and the writing of this song and this whole era. Um, I'm just so thankful um, that this song was written and that I'm able to listen to it whenever I want. I cannot imagine, you know, if if I didn't have it, like if for one one day this song didn't exist anymore, I would be very sad. <laughs> so um, that being said, uh, <clears throat> this song became the title for the Don Was documentary in the 90s about Brian Wilson, which is very great. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, funny enough, he doesn't do this song on that album. but I had such a beef with that. <laughs> yeah, how do you call it? I just wasn't made for these times. And he does all these great songs. He does Caroline No and he does Till I Die and Do It Again, but he doesn't do this song. It's strange, but you know. No, but you know what? It's okay because some other artists have done some rad versions of this song, like I was talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. And the two I really dig, I really love the former lead singer of Supergrass, Daz Combs does a really fab version of it for an album he did of i think it was a bunch of different cover things he did and it was one of the ones he did and his version is pretty sick but my favorite version that's not the beach boys is sixpence none the richer's version uh, a great band from the late 90s that has an amazing nashville based lead singer lee nash but they did a great unique very of its era take on the song but i've listened to it many times and i revisited it today and highly recommend it each time things start to happen again i think i got something good going for myself but what goes Well, yeah, man, we've been going on and on today about this song, but that's what we do here at Sail On. I'm now uh, aware that there are a couple other Beach Boys podcasts, and there is one that I just found out about, a new one, Jason. I don't think you know about this, oh, but no. there's another one, and it's called... Oh, no. 
It's called the Only Beach Boys Podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what it's called. Oh, so, man. Props to those guys. That's really... Uh, Let's all get together at a Buffalo Wild Wings sometime. Well, um, PJ from um, the uh, Beach Boys Boys Podcast is actually going to be in Nashville this weekend. So I think I might... I, I told him to hit me up, so we'll see if he actually does. I might need to take um, a bodyguard with me. But I will report back on that hopefully next week. All right. For you guys. Well, just so you know, um, I'm totally down anytime any other Beach Boys podcasts want to go have wings. So let's do this. We're going to keep doing what we're doing over here and uh, chugging along, um, moving and a grooving through Pet Sounds. Um, our next regular episode which will be pet sounds part nine we're going to talk about that's not me and we're also going to talk about mono versus stereo great debate thank you guys for tuning in we will be back hopefully very soon Um, check us out on facebook on patreon on the web sailonpodcast.com and sailonsounds.com and then uh, if you want to email us, sailonpodcast at gmail.com. And then you can leave a voicemail at 615-606-3887. Thanks to Will C. for the great music. And thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to Jason for taking the time. Crazy. See you guys later. Sail on, sailors. No, no, no.